This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Christopher Kelly to the program. How you doing, Chris? Great to be with you, Bob. Christopher Kelly is a military historian. He is a former uh, retired uh, television executive, I should say, uh, and former chairman of Chiron Corporation. Not to take a tangent right away, but that's the company that that puts out the, the graphics for TV stations? That's right. They do the graphics for television. They're based in in uh, Long Island, and they do like uh, the, when the uh, score changes in sports, they they deliver the real time graphics for that kind of things, that kind of stuff. Yes. So, in addition to doing stuff like that, Christopher Kelly has uh, been fascinated and had a lifelong passion for military history, and he's co-author uh, with the Stuart Laycock of the book America Invades. Uh, we've invaded or been militarily involved with almost every country on earth. It's uh, put out by Book Publishers Network, uh, published in 2015. Uh, one thing that I did want to ask you about, uh, Christopher Kelly, is that your uh, book deals uh, to some extent with the man who uh, is related to you or an ancestor of yours who comes from uh, the part of upstate New York where we produce this program, and that man is Stephen von Rensselaer, uh, who led an ill-fated invasion of Canada. What did he do? That's right. Uh, I actually, confusingly enough, I actually have two uh, ancestors named Van Rensselaer. One was James, and the other one was Stephen, who both uh, were involved in invasions of Canada. Uh, the first one, James, was in during the American Revolution, and I have a letter that's reproduced in the book that's dated uh, March seventeenth, seventeen seventy-six, at the at the camp before Quebec, which was the siege of Quebec, and his commanding officer was Benedict Arnold, who. Of course, later uh, was of, uh, betrayed, uh, tried, attempted to uh, betray West Point, but uh, the and then subsequently there was Stephen Van Rensselaer, who was a, gen, a New York general, mm-hmm. who led uh, militia forces from New York, and he led an unsuccessful invasion of Canada during the War of 1812 as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And I, I was reading about Stephen von Rensselaer's uh, invasion. He was appointed to this military post. He really apparently didn't have much military experience. He was more of a politician and a of uh, Dutch descent, of course, and a landowner in New York, and successful um, uh, business man of business, I believe. And he is is. Uh, they, they, they had trouble because the militia in those days was their uh, their charter was to defend the the state that they were in. So a New York State militia would be expected to defend New York State, but they objected to the idea of crossing over into foreign territory when they went into Canada. So some of them were kind of unwilling to to cross the river, so to speak, into Canada, and others others were. But so that's you know part of why the that invasion was not successful, and and he is uh, uh, buried at the old rural cemetery in right near Albany as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Albany rural site. cemetery. Uh, and sure. he, I mean, he had a very interesting life, separate and apart from this. As you say, a big landowner. I mean, he was like the biggest, wasn't he, in, in New York State anyway? I think that's right. That's right. Yes, and uh, involved, I believe, with Rensselaer Polytechnic and and you know many things in New York oh, State. Oh, that's well, that's right. That was one of his cl- uh, many claims to fame is that he was a founder or the founder of of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy. But exactly. the book America Invades um, 
begin or you know, the oldest invasion, if you will, or the earliest uh, uh, invasion took place. You say in 1741. That's right. Even before the American Revolution, and even of course before there was the United States of America. And this was during the War of Jenkins' Year in 1741. There was a war going on, and it was between Britain and Spain. And there was an expedition that was led by uh, Admiral Edmund Vernon of the Royal Navy. His nickname was Old Grog. And he led this expedition to what is today Colombia and led an assault on Cartagena. And there were about 3,500 American colonial troops that participated in this assault, uh, one of whom was uh, Lawrence Washington, who was the older half-brother of George. And while the assault and the, and the war was not particularly successful, uh, Lawrence must have formed a high opinion of his commanding officer because he named his home Mount Vernon in his honor when he returned to Virginia. And when uh, Lawrence passed on, he, uh, he left his home to his younger brother George, and George ended up retaining the name. So there's this direct connection between our first president's home, Mount Vernon, and the very first American invasion. Hmm. The, now, you've talked already about uh, invasions of Canada, which uh, America has uh, tried to accomplish a, a couple of times, or maybe more than a couple. But you say that the U.S. also invaded the United Kingdom itself? Yes, that, that was another story that we have in the book. We have a, we have the book is divided into chapters with a, a chapter on every country in the world. So we have 194 different countries, uh, and from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, and we have a chapter on the United Kingdom. And what some listeners may not be aware of is that in 1778, uh, the American forces actually landed on and invaded, if you will, in, uh, what is England, the United Kingdom, and this this was with. John Paul Jones, uh, who was, you know, is regarded as the father of the American Navy, and he had, was in command of a sloop called the Ranger, and they landed at a town called Whitehaven, which is on the coast of Cumbria, and nobody was actually killed or even injured in this raid, uh, but one coal ship was burnt in harbor, and then uh, John Paul Jones made his retreat, uh, spiking the guns in the harbor. And and made it made it away, uh, but what happened is there were consequences to this invasion. And right after, when the, the British and the British were uh, furious that Americans were bringing the war, the American Revolutionary War, home to their home islands, and insurance rates doubled almost overnight because you know suddenly there was a new threat to uh, to shipping to and commerce, and and then so you fast forward that was 1778 and. Then in 1999, you know, many, many years later, of course, uh, the town of Whitehaven officially pardoned John Paul Jones and gave the U.S. Navy the uh, the right to to visit the city, the city, the freedom of the harbor. So, so, and they launched a festival in Whitehaven, which has, I think, generated something like 15 million pounds of business. A kind of a music and food festival. That's kind of the biggest thing that goes on in Cumbria every every summer. I guess so. But I could see how the the English people or the the government would be just aghast at uh, uh, at what uh, Jones did. Yes, exactly. And if you go to, to, I have a picture also in the book of Whitehaven. You have there's a picture of John Paul Jones spiking the guns, a statue that you can find in in Whitehaven today. That's as a reminder of of. Uh, what I, I'm glad to please. And of course, he's. He, He's buried in Annapolis. I mean, at the Naval Academy, is in the chapel there, is where you find John Paul Jones buried today. I'm glad to plead ignorance here. I, I should, I should. I don't know what you mean by spiking the guns. Ah, spiking the guns is when you 
take a nail, and you just an ordinary nail, and drive it into the touchstone of a gun, what that does is it renders it uh, inoperable. I mean, that you it's very difficult to take a nail out of a gun once it's been spiked. And so what he was trying to do, he was trying to make good his escape with his, with his uh, shipmates. And so by sparking the harbor guns, it meant that they couldn't fire on them as they're, you know, as they're rowing back to their, to their ship in the, their longboats. So, so it was his way of, of making a clean escape, if you will. Before we leave in invading the, the British Isles, um, I, I do want to bring up the, the connection with your co-author, Stuart Laycock. He had written, uh, earlier had written a book about uh, England invading. Isn't that correct? That's right. He wrote a book called All the Countries We've Invaded, which was published in 2012 by History Press. And it was about how Britain, in, it formatted the same way with a chapter in every country in the world from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. And it was how Britain invaded 90% of all the countries in the world. And I read his book with interest, and I wrote a review of it, <clears throat> and I forwarded it to him. And we met in London. We both live in London. And we met for a pint in a pub and we became friends. And I said, well, as an American, I'd be curious to see how uh, American history compares to British history. We don't have as much history, but we've been kind of catching up in the invasion category, so to speak. So so together we wrote uh, America Invades. And then just recently we followed up with Italy Invades, how, how Italians conquered the world as well. But with America, I mean, has America invaded as many countries as, as Britain has? Right. So, I mean, we haven't, according, according to our research, we have not invaded 90% of the world, but we've invaded about 85 of the 194 countries, which represents 44% of the world, so about half of what Britain has done. But And when we define invasion, by the way, we meant Americans fighting abroad in a foreign country. So if, if Americans were fighting in Colombia as they were in 1741, we classified that as, as an invasion. So, and then we, but we also added the category of military involvement. Uh, so that might be something like, for instance, Portugal. We haven't invaded Portugal, but we have had bases in the Azores since World War II, and they're still there to this day. So we uh, categorized Portugal as a country that we've been military involved with. And, and they're also a NATO ally and so forth. So so it's significant military involvement. When you add both categories, uh, we've we've touched almost every country in the world in some way. Uh, there are, out of only three that we've missed that we could tell that we really have missed entirely, and those are Andorra, Bhutan, and Liechtenstein are the three that America has, has not, not gotten to at all. And Andorra, that's a small. Andorra and, Andorra and Liechtenstein are small countries in Europe, or that's right. Andorra is between France and Spain in the Pyrenees, tiny country. And then Liechtenstein, principality of Liechtenstein, is near Switzerland and Austria. I've actually been to Liechtenstein and got to, I talked about the fact that America has never been there. That we got into the newspaper with on the, with that. And then uh, Bhutan is is in Asia, near near Nepal, huh. a mountainous country there too. We're talking with Christopher Kelly. He's co-author of the book America Invades. Well, let's talk about a few more of these uh, invasions. You say a Swedish-American connection in World War II helped America develop its love for pizza. That's right, and that story goes back to my hometown. I grew up in Sacramento, California, and there was a gentleman from Sacramento whose name was Shaky Johnson, and I included this actually in the Sweden chapter of the book because he was Swedish-American. And 
he was going to Sacramento High School when Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor attack took place. And he immediately joined the, the U.S. Navy and he served in the Mediterranean and he called on ports in Italy and he acquired a, an affection and knowledge of pizza and a, a appreciation for it. And he brought that back with him to Sacramento, his hometown after the war. And he founded a, a restaurant called Shakey's Pizza Parlor. And it was the first family uh, style pizza chain in the United States. And of course, it's been copied many times over. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist any longer. But, you know, it's, it's so it was a direct uh, contribution to the American love of pizza was this connection with uh, Shakey okay. Johnson and World War II. But we, has America ever invaded Sweden? Uh, well, that's a good question too. I mean, and you know, so if if a question of have Americans fought in Sweden, um, the surprising answer is is actually yes. I mean that there have been during World War II there was a guy named William Colby who later actually served as the head of the CIA many years later. William Colby, who later became the head of the CIA, served in World War II with the OSS, the Operation of Strategic Services, and he was dropped with his team behind. German lines in occupied Norway during the war, during the closing years of the war. And he did uh, various duties there, including sabotage of bridges and demolition and so forth. And his troops were equipped to, to ski. They were very good skiers. They'd been trained in Colorado to ski. And they uh, were ended up being spotted by a German plane, a Luftwaffe plane, and they they, they uh, briefly panicked and were worried. And so, what as a result of that, they they ended up skiing, doing a kind of a long distance ski uh, escape, if you will, into Sweden, into neutral Sweden, uh, to get away from the, the the Germans. And so, so in a sense, I mean, I mean, it's it's not exactly you know a a, a typical invasion if you but but it is um, you know armed americans kind of fighting in sweden uh during world war ii and so, i mean and he actually colby ended up making contacts with with the Swe with the swedish authorities and he later became the uh cia station chief in stockholm uh at, huh. during the cold war after the war was over you know it does sound this uh, long distance skiing uh, fleeing the german plane sounds like a james bond movie Yes, I mean that it, it was. I mean, he wrote about it himself. He actually wrote a little article about it and how they they dined on elk. I mean, they, they I guess they you know shot elk or something to, in order to sustain themselves, and and uh, they had quite an adventure. And then after the. The, the after the German surrender, I think that they were and they had the the return of the Norwegian royal family to Oslo, and they had a little bit of a parade when that happened, and Colby and his men actually marched in the in the parade in Oslo, the victory parade, if you will, um, that took place at the, at the close of the war. Yet you also write that Norwegian scientists nearly started World War Three. That was a curious incident that we found in our research, too. Back in 1995, this would be in the Clinton administration. This is after the Cold War is over. The Berlin Wall is down, of course. And what happened is that Norwegian scientists were interested in studying the phenomenon of the Northern Lights. And so, and the Northern Lights are unpredictable. You never know kind of when they're going to come out. And so you can't exactly put a press release out that we're, you know, we're going to... And so what happened is they shot, they decided to shoot a rocket off 
in the direction of the Northern Lights, and they didn't. They neglected to kind of tell anybody about this, and so this rocket was shot off in '95, and the, it was detected on Russian radar, kind of coming dangerously close to their Russian territory, and for a you know brief time there was a there was a bit of a panic uh, with the Russians thinking that it was an American uh, sub launched missile, which of course it had nothing to do with. And so, you know, fortunately cooler heads prevailed and wow. there was no, uh, <laughs> you didn't, didn't trigger World War III, but it was, uh, it was, it was a close call, if you will. Chris Kelly is a co-author of the book, America Invades. You have uh, several uh, descriptions of several so-called American food fights. What, what, what are these? Sure. There, I mean, war is a very serious business, and and you know, with real losses and and a very you know very um, you know tragic thing in, in that happens in in our world. But at the same time, there have been some wars that it's hard to classify as anything other than ridiculous and and absurd. And some of them have these food names. I mean, there are three different wars. One is one was called the Pastry War, which took place in Mexico and, and involved a. A chef, French chef, in a, I think in Veracruz, and the repayment of debts that Americans got involved with to some extent. It sounds like something out of Monty Python. Another one is the the Watermelon War, which was in Panama in the 1850s, where an American tourist who was a bit inebriated, I'm told, um, neglected to pay for his slices of watermelon, and the fruit, the Panamanian fruit vendor objected, and there was a there actually were something like 16 people were killed in the subsequent riot in Panama. Um, and the other one is the in the final one is the pig war, which took place in my um, in my adopted home state of Washington State in the San Juan Islands, uh, where there was a conflict between a British settler and an American, and the only casualty of this war was actually a pig who was shot. But uh, there was a brief escalation for a while, and it was in 1859. So, so that was so. Those are the kind of the three the three food wars, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you also describe the American polar bears who invaded Russia. Right. There is. If you go to Troy, Michigan, you'll find a a, a cemetery there, the, the Whitechapel Cemetery, with a marker, mm-hmm. a big polar bear monument there, and which is we also reproduced in the photo section of the book. And the there were there was this polar bear expedition that was sent in 1918 and 1919 during the closing days of World War One uh, to intervene in Russia. And many of these, the reason it's in Michigan is many of them had trained at Camp Custer in Michigan. Many of them were from Michigan, and the, they were sent to northern Russia. The, the, re, the reason for the intervention was you had well, there are two things. One is that in World War One. You had the Russians had uh, were splitting into a revolution in 1917, and Lenin and the Bolsheviks wanted to have an immediate peace with the Germans, and the and the Americans who were just joining in the war on the Allied side wanted the Russians to continue fighting, and so that was part of it. The second part was the political aspect, and that of course the Reds with Lenin were Bolshevik, according to Winston Churchill. They wanted to. Uh, the idea was to strangle the Bolshevik baby in its cradle, which you know, didn't actually work out that way. But but there was a, a political agenda as well, and it wasn't particularly successful. But there were American troops on Russian soil, and for those two years, hmm. America invades the title of uh, of the book. Uh, Chris Kelly, uh, you're listening to these stories, which are interesting and 
uh, in the last one or two were, you know, maybe even humorous. But what what do you make of all this? I mean, that America has invaded so many countries or been so militarily involved. Well, we tried to write in a dispassionate way, not a political book. I mean, like, like if you just Google, you know, America inv- American invasions, you'll find a lot of kind of political rants out there. And we tried not to be a political uh, partisan effort. Uh, we tried to lay out the facts and let readers make up their own minds of whether they think these uh, invasions were a good idea or a bad idea or, or perhaps a bit of both. Um, but, I mean, that being said, I mean, I do think certainly that there were some, I mean, you think about things like D-Day, where we are coming up on, on June 6th um, and the anniversary, the, the 72nd anniversary of D-Day. And, I mean, that, that uh, I think that clearly the world would be a darker place had it not been for um, invasions such as, as the D-Day invasion of France, of Normandy in World War II and the subsequent liberation of the concentration camps and the death camps and the end of the Holocaust. So, so I think that, uh, that America has, has you know, in many cases, played, um, played a, a very important role that in changing the world. And I think, um, and I think in many, for the most part, the world is better for, because of, of, certainly because of, D- of invasions such as D-Day. Mm. Uh, and again, I know you stated you don't want to be political, but just to... Uh, give you another thought on that. I mean, it does seem that as with Great Britain, the United States having uh, such a, a powerful military, it's almost as if uh, you, you can't avoid uh, uh, being involved militarily right. all over the right. world. And it's interesting also the way that, you know, we talk about invasions and military involvements. And <clears throat> the one thing that's interesting about World War Two is, I mean, here we are, and just last year we celebrated the end of VE Day, the end of World War Two, and so now we're at the 71st anniversary of of VE Day and 71st anniversary of the end of you know what was the worst war in human history. And after that war, Americans remained engaged in Europe, and you had things like the Marshall Plan, and you had NATO, and you had the you know, obviously Cold War conflict, and but you which meant bases, which meant you know that you have American bases in Germany to this day through the, out the Cold War and to this day. You have something like about twelve thousand American troops in in Italy, uh, and we invaded Italy in 1943. But we've stayed there to 2016, and and I think that um, that Europe has enjoyed a long peace. I mean, that for 71 years, with the exception of the breakup of Yugoslavia, that that Europe has basically been at peace, and and I think that the American servicemen and the American military has contributed to that. I, I suppose I think you'd also probably have to acknowledge the American taxpayer as well mm. um, has played a role too. Uh, but uh, but I mean so so you know military uh, involvement does not necessarily mean war. Uh, it can mean the preservation of peace as well. Now um, again, the book that we're talking about is America Invades, preceded by Stuart uh, Laycock's um, book about the the British invading. Uh, countries. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the new book, which is about Italy. Um, and you're mainly talking about the the days of the Romans, or what? What is Italy invades? We uh, we, we we turn from we we'd obviously done uh, 
Stu's home country with Britain. He'd done that one. Together we did America. And then we turned to Italy. We both have personal connections to Italy. Um, Stu has written extensively about Roman Britain and studied uh, classics and history at, at Cambridge. And I um, have uh, I have an Italian or half Italian wife. So I'm what you call IBM. I'm Italian by marriage. Uh-huh. Uh, so and we have traveled extensively in Italy and and had. And had spent a good deal of time there, so we both had this kind of personal connection, and we and also you think about it like okay, obviously Britain had this empire that the sun never set upon, and then America is the superpower today, but really the you know the grandfather of all the empires was was Rome, and we interpreted Italy in a very broad sense, including the Romans, even though of course the Romans are different from modern Italians, but we. We we included from Romans through um, through the Second World through Garibaldi to uh, Mussolini in the Second World War and even to you know Italians doing peacekeeping today. So it covers a lot of ground. I mean, in terms it covers the whole world, of course, as all, all our books are kind of world tours. Uh, but it also covers a lot of time a lot of time period as well. Well, Christopher Kelly, I thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the book is America Invades, How We've Invaded or Been Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth, published uh, through the Book Publishers Network. And uh, it's available <clears throat> online and also from the uh, from the publishing house. I thank you very much, unless you had something you, you'd like to add at the end here. Uh, just to point out that uh, 5% of proceeds on the book uh, go to military charities as well. We are uh, we are supportive of, uh, of veterans and, and their, their efforts, too. All right. Well, again, thank you, Christopher Kelly. You have a good day. Thanks very much, Bob. Appreciate it. And we have time left for a story from my history column, Focus on History, which you find in the Daily Gazette. It was about a man named Washington Frothingham. The Frothingham Free Library at 28 West Main Street in Fonda is named for a local man who was a writer and a minister. A sign outside the library pays tribute to Washington Frothingham, who was born in 1822 in East Fonda and died at his home uh, in Fonda. After living a good long life, he was 92 when he died in 1914. He left money in his will to help establish a library, reading room, and billiard room. I don't think they have the billiard room anymore, but they do have the library. Frothingham had a useful career, according to stories about his death in numerous newspapers. He was a syndicated newspaper columnist, book author, historian, philanthropist, and also a clergyman. Frothingham's family, he was the third of ten children, moved from Fonda to Johnstown when he was a young child. Frothingham's mother was the niece of author Washington Irving, and his father was the New York State judge. Frothingham wanted to be a writer, but to help his family, he agreed to move to New York City and try to make some money to send back home working in a store, which he did on Broadway. He became very successful at it, ultimately went in partnership with another man and ran their own store, and at age 28, Frothingham felt called to the ministry. He sold his share of the business, studied at Princeton, developing public speaking skills. He started a Presbyterian church in 
Albany, it's been said. He actually just opened a Sunday school and what they called a preaching station in Albany, but that later became the former West End Presbyterian Church. During the Civil War, Frothingham was invited back to Fonda to restore the declining Reformed Church. He succeeded, although his pro-Union political stance ran counter to the secessionist views of some church members. Frothingham was called to serve the Tribes Hill Presbyterian Church until 1905. He had married in 1862 at age 40, a woman named Mary Middlemass, and he started writing columns on current events for newspapers throughout New York and Massachusetts, including the New York Times. He was the author of several books on history, history of Montgomery and Fulton counties. His writing kept him financially solvent. He was a generous man. In addition to leaving money for the library, he started a public bath in Fonda and a bowling alley. When his work made him a frequent train traveler, he distributed faith-based tracks to train passengers. Washington, Frothingham, a useful life, uh, lived in Fonda and elsewhere in New York. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.